0: Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord... Trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. Ye are blessed of the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The heaven Even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath He given to the children of men. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let us pray for the preaching of it. O holy God in heaven, what a glorious thing that even now as we worship thee, thou art mindful of us. And so we pray, Father, for the preaching of the word that thou would speak through it, through thy servant who now preaches. O Lord, we plead for the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Father. Uh, we have a sure word from God as we read in Second Peter. A more sure word than if you had opened the heavens and spoken to us in that way. We have the very Word of God. And so we pray, Father, that as the Word of God we have opened in the Bible is now proclaimed and preached, that the Holy Spirit would be pleased to minister Christ to us out of it, that the Holy Spirit would open the hearts and the ears to know that Thou art the living God and are no dead idol like the idols of this psalm, but instead that Thou wouldst meet us and minister to us, that You would speak peace to those of us who are here. So open the hearts that are here. And if there are any here who have trusted in idols and not the living God, may this be the day when they call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as the word is expounded, Father, we pray that you would make us know in the preaching of the word that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, surely... Brethren, we realize that we live in a day and age in which our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is often greatly mocked. Where the Bible, as the very Word of God, is mocked and those who believe that it is the very Word of God is mocked. If nothing else, this month, as I've already prayed, proves it. Where Christians find themselves taunted and provoked even, to respond to this so-called Pride Month, uh, where pride in flagrant sin is celebrated by seemingly every quarter of society. And in the midst of this, our faith and trust in Christ is being tested, friends. Some of you might even find it tested in the workplace. As some of you are told, you must, you must affirm sexual perversion, no matter what your faith is says or believes whatever God says, you must affirm these things that our society is rushing headlong to embrace. Where you must embrace a person's so-called personal pronouns, where you must affirm that two men can love each other and marry each other and adopt children and everything else. And your faith and trust in the Lord even to compromise the truth of God's word is going to be more and more sorely tested. And perhaps in recent years, more than in any other time in our nation's history, uh, you are going to be called to trust in the Lord, even to your own hurt, to your own uh, material welfare. And so, in the midst of times like these, God gives you this precious psalm to sing. That you might have your trust and hope in the Lord. A psalm that proclaims in the face of intense mockery for your faith. That the soul that trusts in Christ is the one that is truly blessed. And that those who trust in any other thing. Because let's just be frank. somebody Every person trusts in something for their safety and security. It is those people who will not trust in Christ who will find eternal sorrows. And so that's the theme by which we will consider our psalm of the month, that the soul that trusts in Christ is the one that is truly blessed in the face of mockery, in the face of persecution, and those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ and trust in him only are the ones who will find eternal sorrow for their soul. And so we'll divide our time and this psalm into three heads that are on your outline. The first is the mockery of trusting Jehovah. Jehovah. Second is the sensibleness of trusting Jehovah. And the third is the blessedness of trusting Jehovah. And so the first head is the mockery of trusting Jehovah. And so before we dive into the psalm, just a bit of review. And you might recall that we are in the midst of what are called the Great Hallel or the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. And traditionally, these were sung by our Jewish fathers at the Passover in which they celebrated our great deliverance out of Egypt, right? And what we see in the New Testament, as Christ and His disciples sung these at the First Lord's Supper, is that we celebrate the greater exodus that Jesus Christ has won for His people. You remember recently in Luke 9, we considered in the Transfiguration, when Jesus speaks with Moses, He speaks of His exodus, that he is going to accomplish, meaning his decease. The more needful exodus, the great exodus from our sin and our misery, from our bondage to sin and Satan. This is a bondage that is so total we have heard, that only Jesus Christ, Son of God, could free us from it. Uh, This is a bondage that necessitated, as we solemnly think on these Hallel Psalms and how they are leading up to the death of Christ in Psalm 118. This this bondage that we had, we have heard, necessitated the death of the Son of God to suffer the wrath that sinners deserve as the penalty for our sin. Uh, Sinners who would believe on His name that when He said, It is finished. All their debt would be wiped away. And this is the only way man can have salvation. That all his righteousness would be given to them. And all of their sin would be placed on his head at Calvary. Such that our salvation from our bondage to sin. And the wrath that we deserve from God would be completely paid. It would be a gift that we receive by grace alone. Received by faith alone such that when we perceive by faith the words, it is finished, that one word in the Greek language, it preaches that the greater exodus has been accomplished by Christ. And as we see his uh, triumph three days later, as he rises from the dead on the first Lord's day, as he rises from the dead in, in triumph, we see Christ's total victory to win our salvation. That as we uh, see, Christ raised from the dead as we celebrate this Lord's Day. We see that he has won our salvation and we ourselves will be raised from the dead on the final day. Even as this psalm says that we are to sing, that we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Because we will not go down to the pit like those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And so it is Christ's total victory from uh, uh, over sin and The grave that we celebrate in these psalms. That Christ alone, right, remains the sinner's sole hope and our sole trust. And so even as the Passover made way for the Lord's Supper, these psalms are now sung at the Lord's Supper by the Christian church, right? just as Jesus sang them at the first Lord's Supper on the night in which he was betrayed. And so as you think of the Lord's Supper coming up next Lord's Day, as we prepare for the supper, meditate on these psalms this week, if you would, and sing them in your private and family devotions. Sing them with faith and understanding, understanding how they point us to Christ's salvation, the great exodus we need. Now, as for Psalm 115, as we consider our psalm in the very middle of these Hallel psalms, uh, this psalm has no inspired title. And so, though it was placed in the Psalter to be sung at the Passover and Lord's Supper, there is no historical event uh, that we can confidently identify which occasioned its writing. But what is clear about the psalm is that God's people were under a great distress when it was penned, perhaps threatened by a heathen power, maybe even under bondage to them, could be the bondage in Egypt, under Pharaoh or the Babylonian captivity or anything else. But their great pain was found in this, that the heathen were mocking them, that they retained faith in Jehovah. Right. That they retained faith in his word. They retained faith in his promises. Right. Right even though he did not appear to be their present help. And so they were mocking the people of God and said one of two things, right? Jehovah is nothing more than a make-believe idol or Jehovah had abandoned them and there was no cause for them to have faith. Consider verse 2. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? You can almost imagine the heathen taunting Oh, you, the people of God, where is this God that you are always speaking of as the one true God, as you tell us that our gods are mere idols, right? Uh, You seem to be in a position which is quite humorous. In fact, we, the idolaters, are in power, and you are being crushed under our feet. Whereas you say, the one true God that only exists, where is your God now? Right? This is sort of the challenge, right? This is the mockery. You might think in Egypt, Pharaoh might have asked, where now is the God of Egypt? Uh, of Rather, not of Egypt, of Joseph. Where is the God of Joseph? Because I have the God of Joseph's people as my slaves. Or what about Sennacherib when he sends the, the rabsheikh to rail on Hezekiah when he said, As the gods of the nations of other lands have not delivered their people out of mine hand, so shall not the God of Hezekiah deliver his people out of mine hand. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, which were the work of the hands of man. In other words, where is now the God of Hezekiah? And they were treating the true God as a mere idol. Then in exile in Babylon, you remember the mockery of Psalm 137. And they that wasted us required of us mirth saying, sing one of the songs of Zion. Can you imagine it? The heathen saying to the people of God, sing one of your psalms to us. Oh, let let us choose. How about we choose Psalm 2 for you? Sing for us with mirth. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and He perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. And how does the rest of it go? Right? Why don't you sing this too? Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Yes, go on, blessed, wasted ones. Trust in Him now. Sing that for us now. In mockery, right? In effect, saying where now is the God of David? It's not so different today either, beloved. And so the psalm doesn't really need a historic context by which we might get mired into the details. It is ours, rather, given to us by the Holy Ghost so that we feel empowered to take it upon our lips whenever and wherever we need. In God's perfect timing, this month you will need this psalm. For this month, the Bible as the word of God will be mocked. Where now is your God? You know, think of the word from Romans 1 that will be laughed at. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet you know, at the pride parades in this month, and even now it's astonishing, right, so-called conservative politicians now falling all over themselves to pander to sin. What is the theme this month in our nation? Where now is their God? There is a flagrant societal mockery of the word of God and God himself, a taunting and a testing of God's patience, especially as you think on this, right? They take the rainbow, which is a blessed symbol of God's covenant not to flood the earth and parade it as a banner for sin. Uh, that's blasphemy. That is grotesque. That is evil. Where now is your God? Right? They are testing God. Oh God, you said you are going to flood the earth. You are not going to flood the earth. Here is our sin. Right? What are you going to do about us? And it's maybe more astonishing that, you know, several, and I thank God for good brothers, uh, good ministers who are pleading at several of these pride parades, right, that they are pleading with men to and women to turn from their sin to be reconciled to God in Christ. These are the ones who are going to be mocked, hated, and taunted. Where now is your God? And in that, I do want to say before I go too far over um, and this might seem a bit of a digression, but I think it is very necessary here that even in this month, as we preach against sin, we also preach Christ crucified for sinners. Right. Uh, there is both there. We preach, look unto Jesus and be ye saved. We preach the saving power of Christ to save the worst sinners that through faith. Right. Yours, even though your righteousness is as filthy rags, yours can be the alien righteousness of Christ. That all of your sin, even these things that are abominations in the sight of God, can be uh, cleansed. They can be forgiven. And all of it, even the most grotesque thing, can be washed by the blood of Christ. That Christ has suffered for the chief of sinners. And this is the gospel that we preach, right? And this is what is even shown in verse 1. For thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Beloved, it is an astonishing thing, right? We are not just mocked for the truth of God's word, but we're also mocked for the mercy that is found in God's word as well. The truth of God's word, what man is to believe concerning God, the one true God is mocked. What it teaches of what God requires of man is mocked. But most sobering of all, the mercy that it teaches is in God, our Father, in Jesus Christ, is mocked. The full free forgiveness for sin he holds forth to sinners in Jesus is laughed at. And maybe some of you have laughed at it yourself in the times past. Isn't that an astonishing thing that God is merciful to those who trust in him? And will give mercy to any who come to Christ that's mocked. It's a terrible thing, friends. And uh, I think our problem, though, as God's people, is that when our faith is mocked, is to first take personal offense. But our psalm tells you to forget that. What you need to be more offended at is this, that they mock Jehovah. You know, they are mocking our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Psalm says, you are to remember His honor. You are to remember His glory. And our sin is to neglect His majesty and His glory. And that's why the Psalm begins with a plea for God to arise, but for what cause? Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and thy truth's sake. Now this is where the Christian begins when uh, when they are persecuted, when our faith is mocked. Our deeper concern is actually for the very glory of God. When the church is humiliated, our primary concern is not even our own preservation, but that Jesus is mocked and treated as though he were nothing more, as uh, Rabshakeh claimed, as an inept idol that he doesn't hear, and that he doesn't see. And so what we do is we plead, Arise, O Lord, show thyself to be not as Baal was before Elijah, but show thyself Jehovah, I am that I am. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name, that is Jehovah, give glory. And the Lord, in this psalm, gives you the response that you need to where is now their God. It's found in verse 3 as we think on Jehovah. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And this speaks of the sovereignty and rule of God, right? From the heavens, our God rules from his throne. Seated over the earth, his sovereignty expressed in the words, he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Now, this psalm, I don't believe first and foremost, is a polemic against the unbeliever, but is actually used to soothe and settle the soul of the Christian. And that's why we say when the heathen are saying these things, right, we might not even have an audience with them. So what do we do? We sing and praise God that our God is in the heavens, and he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And this is the answer that you need, friend is that you need to remember that in every mockery, every trial of faith, Christ is seated on his heavenly throne, right? Just look at history. Uh, Just look at the Bible, right? In every case, when the idolaters seem to have the upper hand, you find that in God's good timing, right? You find that Christ overshadows all that. And he brings these things for the glory of God, and for the good of his people. And it, the sad and solemn thing is, when they mock us, where is now your God? What does the Bible say? That he is not slack concerning his promise, but instead he is giving them time to repent. Right? They, 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 they deny the mercy of God towards them when they mock us this way. But let's just think about church history, right? Let's go into the book of Acts. When Stephen was martyred, Right and teeth were gnashed against him, and stones were hurled to crush his skull. And they might ask, really in effect, Stephen, where now is your Christ? What did you see? There is Christ. Did he abdicate the throne? No. If any reason for him standing and not sitting on his throne was to receive his martyr, right? But he was on the throne superintending even that providence. The Lord was pleased. We are sometimes astonished to say it, to have Stephen martyred, to serve even greater ends. Our Lord hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. What did he do through it? He pushed the expansion of the church out of Jerusalem so that they wouldn't be very, very settled there. He even caused the conversion of the Apostle Paul through this means. To drive the church to a deeper zeal for Christ and for missionary works. If the Jews will reject the Lord for a time, we will go to the Gentiles. Our Lord has done whatsoever He pleases from His throne in heaven. And so you have to see even these pride parades and the mockery of His word today. He will be glorified ultimately, and it is for the good of His church. Just as Joseph said in Genesis 50, verse 20, but as for you, he's speaking to his brothers, he thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. You know, you think about in prison, in jail, Potiphar's wife, all of them could have asked Joseph, right, where now is your God? He knew where his God was, on the throne, superintending even evil for the good of the world. And such is the quiet faith and trust you need in Christ's ultimate sovereignty, beloved. Right? Even that, Everything seems to be going specifically against the church and Christians. Our trust in Christ is retained, even when they mock us and all things seem seem to be against us. We are confident that our Jesus is in the heavens and does whatsoever he pleases. And we are to continue to preach his gospel and the word, which is the word of truth. Well, our, t- our psalm teaches us more about trusting him. And teaches us that really trusting in him, this is the offensive of the psalm, is the only sensible thing to do, which is our second head. And so the psalm goes on the offensive, and it turns the heathen's question on its head um, in a manner and poses this in return. How can they trust what they trust in? What basis do the heathen have to hope in their gods or their philosophy? Verse 4. Uh, This is the truth. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. And so here's where the polemic comes, right? How can you trust in what they trust in, really, right? They trust in these things. Uh, They have no basis to trust in them. Now, it's interesting as you think on this, especially boys and girls, silver and gold, they are metals that are precious, right, to men and women, right? In fact, we call them literally precious metals for that reason, right such that men have literally died to possess them right these are the things that men value but this is idolatry and this is why idolatry is seen so tragically in one sense but also wonderfully through God's word in this way right because what is it to the christian Right. Is silver and gold ultimately what is precious? No. In fact, we think on the precious words we heard not so long ago as we were going through Peter's writings. Right. Unto you, therefore, which believe he, that is Jesus, is precious. Right. And so what idolatry shows us is we fashion gods. We fashion things to serve based on what man finds to be precious. In this case, silver and gold. And so in the final analysis, the first question we must ask, are silver and gold really all that precious indeed? No. You can ask a simple question, right, as we think on mammon, on, on the love of money, right? You think on men like Steve Jobs, did his precious billions save him from his sins? No, right? These things cannot redeem us. It cannot redeem our soul. In fact, we remember more words from Peter for our faith, right? Our faith is much more precious than of gold that what? Perisheth. Showing you in the final analysis what the things men worship are that are apart from Christ. Faith, though, in the invisible God, that is far more precious than silver and gold. You know, your silver and gold, they'll all perish, Consider all the silver and gold that has been left behind for thousands of years by dead men and dead women. Their gods cannot save, can they? But the one who trusts in the Lord Jesus, how much more precious he is, right? You think of how precious uh, he is to the believer, right? All of my sins washed by the blood of the Lamb of God. His righteousness is mine. He is my very life. Right And where he is, he is now preparing a place that I may dwell with him forever. Right, He has placed a wedding garment on me that I have received by faith. The Lord snatching us in death to himself to an eternal and heavenly joy without end. Pleasures at his right hand forevermore. But the idols of the heathen, these things of silver and gold... The irony is, men have made them with their own hands. And this is the folly of idolatry, if you want to sum it up, right? We bow down before what we ourselves have made, what we ourselves have imagined. And really, I think if you just thought on it that way, as the Bible teaches you to uh, think on it, that is so foolish, friends, in the final analysis, isn't it? to venerate and worship something that you, yourself, or an artisan has made. This is really the ultimate demonstration of the darkness of fallen man's mind and heart. After all, this is just the simple equation, right? The thing that is created is always less than the thing that creates it. And so what do you do when you bow down to the things of the creation, right? You are bowing down even to something less than man, And that's the folly of idolatry. Man being made in the image of God makes something less than himself to embrace it. Now, this idolatry is so deeply woven into fallen man's heart that you even find that some churches have started to adopt this kind of thing with syncretism, right? With paganism. You think of the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches where today men and women are bowing before statues and images and crosses. Right. The works of men's hands rather than faith, sending them to the invisible God that they receive by faith. When we are told to walk by faith and not by sight, man wants to see the things of the creation and bow down to those things. And even Christians are prone to these things. One of the first churches I was in, right? Men and women, even those as a Protestant church, would find the cross in the meeting hall and sit down before it like it had some sort of power. Idolatry is all before us, friends, and we're called to put it away. But our psalm reminds us that unlike the gods of the pagans, right, uh, which are created by the hands of men, the true God made us and we did not make him. Verse 15 says, Ye are blessed of the Lord which made heaven and earth. Right? We serve the one. We are blessed by the one who has made all the created things. Or as uh, we know so memorably in Psalm 100, verse 3, Know ye that the Lord he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. Right? What a foolish thing then it is to go and create a carved image and to serve it when the true God is the one who has created us, right? Could the carved thing that we have made make us when we have made it? This is the folly of the darkened mind, isn't it? So not only are the idols of this world less than mere men, the psalmist shows us as he continues his offensive against trusting them in verses 5 through 7, how inept they are. Verses 5 through 7. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. Now, it's so interesting, right? The idols of the men of this world... Uh, And I'm saying all of this, as you well know, coming from a background in Hinduism, right? And so a lot of this is just very, very um, near to me in some ways in my own family, but growing up in this way. But it's always very interesting as I was thinking on this, right? The idols of the heathen are almost inevitably fashioned to have mouths, eyes, ears, noses, hands, and feet. And yet the Bible says they cannot speak. They cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot smell, they cannot handle, and they cannot walk, right? And, and if we were sensible, we would understand this, right? They are completely inept in every possible way. And the question now comes, as they mock us for our faith in Jehovah, how is it that you can trust in these gods? How can you, heathens, trust in, me, in, in these idols that cannot see, cannot hear, cannot smell, cannot handle, cannot walk? How can you trust in gods like Dagon who bow down before the ark of God and fall down before it? Cannot move itself, cannot put itself back into position. Men have to hoist it back up. You might even see in idolatry, uh, idolatrous practices, men and, and women who will carry their gods maybe even into some place of worship and they just fall over. Here we come to worship this thing. And it falls over and smashes onto the ground, showing you completely, utterly how foolish idolatry is. But what of our God in comparison? And this is the really the glory of the comparison, right? He is not mute; he speaks by his word and his Holy Spirit, and even by the word of his power. Right? He created all things. And what about his mighty hand and outstretched arm? He saves us. His very presence, as in Psalm one fourteen, causes mountains to tremble and seas to flee as for seeing right and this is really both the glory of it and also the the horror of it for the sinner his eye sees even into the secrets of men's hearts where no other eye can go as for walking he walketh upon the wings of the wind and maketh the clouds his chariot in the difference between the idols of this world and the true and living god the the difference could not be starker you've seen this clash throughout both church history as well as in the Bible, right? In the Exodus, you saw the clash between the gods of Pharaoh and Jehovah. And you see Jehovah come on top, the gods of the Egyptians as nothing, the Lord asserting his power over them. Same thing of the gods of the Babylonians, the gods of the Assyrians, the gods of the Persians, the gods of the Romans, the gods of the Greeks, and the gods of every other nation that has sought to have the preeminence over Christ. And so we have to understand as we think on this polemic, right? In his divinity, what is our Christ? He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is omnipotent and omniscient, right? But what if the gods of this world, dumb, deaf, and lame? And you have to believe that by faith, beloved. And so the central point of the psalm is in verses 9 through 11, this threefold repetition. O trust thou in the Lord, trust thou in Jehovah. In other words, the question is, you can, or really the statement is, you cannot trust anything else. There is nothing else you can trust in. You can only trust in the Lord. And so, beloved, no matter what happens in this world, you are to retain your trust in the triune God and his word and him only. This is the stuff of faith right because man is prone to trust in things less than himself that he can touch and handle uh, rather than his invisible creator that he cannot see and yet it is this kind of faith in the invisible god that is true saving faith what did jesus say blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed right this is the blessing right he he says to you you have not seen me right with your eyes you have seen me, though, you have even perceived me as though crucified among you by faith in the word of God and the Holy Spirit testifying that this is the truth of God. And so Peter could say elsewhere, right, having not seen this Jesus, yet you love him. Right. That is what faith does. This is the stuff of faith. And this is what is not found in idolatry. And I, I, as I was thinking on the Exodus and these Hallel Psalms, right? And being reminded of Moses. You remember what Hebrews 11.27 said of him. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured how? As seeing him who is invisible. Right? I've always been taken by that phrase. Oh, that you would see him who is invisible, brethren. Right? Faith given by the Holy Spirit, takes the word of God such that you cannot see him visibly, but by faith, he who is invisible and cannot be seen with human eyes, you trust and you commit all of your well-being to. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. What does faith do? What does this trust do? It causes you to trust Christ for salvation. It causes you to trust him for provision. It causes you to trust him for protection and for perseverance. Trust thou in the Lord. If there is nothing else you will find or remember in this psalm, it is this refrain, thrice repeated, that has to be the central theme for you, child of God. Why is it repeated three times? Because our infirmity is that we don't trust him in all things ordinarily. And we are often, when we are taunted or we are challenged for our faith, we are quick to run away. But verses 9-11, through hear them read again. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Three times exhorted, trust in the Lord. Who is called? Israel, meaning all the covenant people of God are called to trust in the Lord. The house of Aaron, meaning the ministers of God are called to trust in the Lord and how they need to trust in the Lord as they do the ministry. Then the God-fearers, those who are afar off, not of Israel today, are called to trust in the Lord. And this, I think it's interesting. Here's another sign that Israel of old was called to be evangelical, right? called to call others to fear the Lord as we are today. But friend, whatever you are, whoever you are, you are called to put your trust in Christ. Only he can save you. Uh, He is true God and true man, one Christ to save. Trust in him only. And what will he be to you? Did you miss the other part of the repetition? He is their help and their shield. Can any idol, can any created thing be your help and your shield? Can any man, can any woman, can any philosophy be that to you? No. You need to trust entirely in Jehovah who is, uh, and Jesus, who has given his name, the name above every other. And I think for our time today, before we depart, we need to remember that idols in our society may look different than in times of old but are idols nonetheless. You know, anything that you serve and find your well-being in is an idol. And the psalm gives you a test to root out idols in your life, Christian. What do you consider your shield and what do you consider your help? That thing is an idol to you, right? Whatever you find your ultimate security and satisfaction in, especially when your heart starts to panic for some reason, right? If it is not Christ, if it is not true God, that thing is an idol to you. Christian, it is the case that you may very well harbor secret idols that you cherish, just as Rachel right secreted her father's household idols and kept them a secret. If the Lord looked into your heart, right, what would he find as he found in Rachel's possession? What is it that you say is truly your shield? What is truly your help? What is it in your heart that you really, no matter what your profession of faith is, what you truly trust in. Is it your money? That's your idol. Is it your politicians, your political party that you find your faith and hope in? That is an idol. Is it even your denomination? That could be an idol. right? Is it your strength and your health? That is an idol. Is it your job? right? That's an idol too. If you trust these things over God who works through these things, then these things are idols to you you are called uh, in, with the loss of all things. I mean, even family can be an idol if that's where you find your strength and your security. You are called to have your confidence solely and entirely upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything else is an idol to you because you have elevated it over Christ. And what we need to remember as well as we bring this idea to our society is that idols are any created things. And they are not just the products of man's hands, but they're also the product of man's minds as well. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, we are called to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Meaning that we are to cast down imaginations, whatever is the product of man's mind that is not in accordance with the truth of God. And you can think of philosophies and so on, right? This is the primary idolatry you will find, especially young people as you go into the colleges today, right? The universities. Um, you think and you find uh, philosophies like materialism, right? Trust not in Jehovah, but trust in the science, falsely called, so-called. It's amazing how often, especially during the pandemic and afterwards, you hear this kind of saying as a mantra, trust the science, trust the science, trust the science. But what is often given, you know, there's a good science, a good knowledge out of the natural order and of natural theology and natural knowledge of those kinds. But there is a science falsely called, Paul warned Timothy, because it is an idolatrous version of science that Uh, proceeds to give man license to not serve the true God. Isn't this, after all, the foundation of things? Like Darwinism, right? It it gives you an origin that is not that of the creator. So that you don't have to serve the creator who is blessed over all, right? But instead serve the creature. And today you also see uh, science falsely called is adored because, right, as we think on this month, we refuse now to say that a man is one who has, an XY, who has XY chromosomes and a woman has two X chromosomes, right? And now we say we don't know what a man or a woman are anymore. Uh, science, falsely called, you know, science which reflects the truth of God's word says, in the beginning God made them male and female. And so we find as well other philosophies of old, there's nothing new under the sun, renewed and reborn, things like Epicureanism, right, to live for pleasure, It displaces the chief end of man, which is what, boys and girls? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's the basis of true religion, but it has been replaced with idolatry, right? You can almost say man's catechism, uh, fallen man's catechism is to gratify self and enjoy pleasure. That's man's chief end in our American society today. And what this is ultimately is, and you must understand all idolatry is really the idol of self which is the greatest idol of them all, right? And really, this is what the idols of man are truly about, the idol of self. You think of the uh, gods and goddesses of old. What are they, right? You, you have the fertility goddess. Why? Because men love fornication, right? You have things like the god of money, uh, of mammon, and so on, god of power and of war. These are things that man exalts in as they seek uh, these things for their own self, And what is the theme today that our society feeds our children in books and stories and movies, even in ostensibly family uh, entertainment, so called? It's almost the mantra, right? Trust in yourself. Believe in yourself. Right? This is what the world is teaching our children. Right? You can do it. I know there's a proper way in which we can have a kind of healthy view that the Lord may empower me to do this or that if it's His will, but this is an atheistic, idolatrous exaltation of man. Trust in yourself, right? But not in Jehovah. And this is the idolatry of self. But All men are called to glorify our holy, exalted, triune God. To sing and say, and may these words be emblazoned on your hearts, believers. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. Right? This is where the Christian gives glory. This This is what smashes idolatry. Not unto us, but unto thy name, Jehovah, give glory. And the Lord says you must repeat this twice to hammer it into your heart because we are not prone to, to, to sing or say it. That it is never about us. It is about God and His glory. What you and I must do is find that greatest idol of all in our heart, uh, which is our self. And you must cast it away. All of Our idols, whether they be physical or mental, all of it must be gone. And we are to serve and trust the Lord only. Isn't that why also, right, we we proclaim salvation is of the Lord. Why? There is no boasting. Right, even there there, there are Christian uh, sects which will say that salvation is of good works. But there is glorying in that, the Bible says, if, if that is the case. No, we say salvation is entirely of the Lord, so that no man may boast in the sight of God. Not unto us, but unto thy name give the glory. Well, to prevent, and I have to go a bit quicker, to prevent you from giving yourself to idols, you remember what our psalm called them, right? Deaf, dumb, blind, and so on. Uh, there's an axiom in our psalm that we have to take note of. What we worship, we become like. Verse 8, they that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. You know, the world has its own axiom, which is something like this. You are what you eat, Like, right? right? But the Bible says you are what you worship. You worship idols and you will become just as insensible as they are. You worship mammon, right? You look at men and women who worship mammon. You are consumed with greed, right? And nothing is enough. I must have more. You worship sex. You become more and more perverse and perverted, right? You become what you worship. Uh, Just consider the pride parades this month. I don't recommend any of you look at them, right? But it is shocking to see the animalistic nature of them. Men made in the image of God, made for holiness, made for righteousness, made for chastity, made for charity, will show themselves to be like beasts because they worship sex and they worship self and they become like the animals. You weep. You really do weep for what they do. And you pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we are to be driven to take the gospel to them that they would turn to Christ, be saved and healed, lest they perish eternally in their sin. But what is the blessing of those who trust in the Lord and worship him only? You become like what you worship, which is Jesus, right? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. In Romans 8.29, not in Christ's divinity, but in his character. You become more holy like Jesus as he sanctifies you. you. You gain a sense of his love in your life, his patience, his character, his trust in God only, his desire to only glorify God and enjoy him. Uh, those graces as you truly bow down and worship God are born in your heart all the more. One is not saved by being more like him. You are saved by his perfect righteousness, received by faith, but you are saved to become more like him. And that is the glory of worshiping Jesus Christ. If you say you adore him, right, and you say he is altogether lovely, what a thing it would be that you would long to be like him. And as you worship him, right, in spirit and in truth, you become like he that you worship. Whereas the idolater becomes like the thing that they worship, deaf, dumb, mute, blind, and all of it. And so this is the blessing of worshiping Jehovah. And the psalm has many more to consider, which we'll consider in our final heading, the blessedness of trusting Jehovah. And so because he is the living God, right, and he is not an idol that cannot be sensible He is not an idol of our imagination or hands. We read in verse 12a, something no idol can be for us. The Lord hath been mindful of us. You know, we say, let the heathen mock us and let them say Christ will not see, that Christ will not help. But we will remember that he has a covenant and he has promised that he is mindful of us. Just as he did in the Exodus chapter 2. The children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and what? God had respect unto them. Be of good cheer, beloved. God remembers us. God is mindful of us. He thinks on us and He never forgets us. Not one of you believers is forgotten before God. And He made you a covenant of grace in Christ to promise you that and to pledge that to you, believer. And the Lord's Supper, as it comes next week, it shows you that He has been mindful of you, believer. Does he not say, beloved, this cup is the New Testament or new covenant in my blood? Can you take the chalice? Can you sip of it and doubt that the Lord hath been mindful of us? No. He says, this do in remembrance of me. And what he is really saying, right, is not so much that you remembered me, but that I remembered you and you are not forgotten before God and you are never to forget that. Our Father was mindful of you, believer, when you were yet without strength. He sent His Son to die for you to show that for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, but yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He has been mindful of your greatest need, believer. Will He forget you after it? Will Christ forget you when he has lived for you? He has bled for you. He has died for you. No. Compare him then. Compare this Jesus to every other thing you might trust in or go to for help as your help and your shield. Will they ever be mindful? This is really the flip side of this, right? Our God has been mindful of us. Can any idol, can any philosophy be mindful of you? No. Will any philosophy, will any idol know what you need even before you say it? No. So why would you place your trust in anyone or anything else but Jesus Christ? Now our problem the psalm demonstrates is we are not mindful of him. Not that he is unmindful of us. We are not mindful that he is in the heavens. He rules over all and does what he pleases and he will bless us. Verses 12-15, through the Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. This is sort of the echo or the mirror of Israel, trust thou in the Lord. In response to trusting in the Lord, you are called to sing that he will bless us. He will bless all those that are called to trust in him, no matter who they are. And our faith must believe it, that He will bless all those who trust in Him. And isn't this remarkable, right? He does not in any way need to reward our trust in Him. But He has shown Himself gracious to do it nonetheless. It doesn't matter who you are, if you're of the house of Israel, if you're of the house of Aaron, if you are those far off who fear the Lord, if you are small or you are great. He is no respecter of persons. He blesses both small and great. Do you think you have no uh, you are of no matter of no use to the kingdom? He says he will bless you. He blesses you children. He blesses you children who believe. He blesses you mothers who raise children. He blesses you singles. He blesses even you who seem forgotten by the church. He blesses you officers of the church who labor ceaselessly for his cause. He blesses all his people to spur them on in faith and in good works. And he gives you a blessed promise in verse 14 to his church. The Lord shall increase you more and more, you and your children. Friends, no matter the noise the heathen make, no matter how small the church may seem in any given age, this is our faith. The church will grow. The church will increase. Her children will increase as well. And as Acts 2.39 says, the promise being to our children and to those afar off, the Lord will increase us with spiritual children from both within and from without. You know, I think this is the glory of it, if we would think on this rightly, that God will have spiritual children and the church will grow even from those that one day marched in pride parades. As we, as he plunders the gates of hell, right? After 1 Corinthians 6 says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. What does the next verse say? And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know, the church is called to increase by plundering the gates of hell, by going to preach the gospel, even to people who are rebels, right? Because he makes a willing people out of a rebellious people, even men and women like ourselves. You know, and the interesting thing is, right, we know that the world wants to take our children and convert them, and we're to be jealous for our children and not let them have that influence. But we forget that we are the ones who are called to go and by God's word turn idolaters to the Lord. We're actually to plunder them. We're actually to take them and make them the children of God by the Spirit of God. You know that the Lord has done this many times, and we believe he will continue to do it, even as we are called to protect our own children from perversion and idolatry. Then in verse 15, ye are blessed of the Lord which made heaven and earth. Uh, this is so important to remember. Not only will we be blessed, we are blessed presently. Right? All of you who have faith in the Lord, you don't leave here this day without remembering you are blessed of the Lord. Right? You have everything you need in Christ. You have an eternity ahead of you right? Redeemed by our Redeemer, who is also our Creator, right? And sometimes we look for future blessing and ignore present ones, even in distress. But we are to say, in distress, we are blessed of Christ. Verse 16, and I'm just going to have to close this quickly. Uh, The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. Now, Christ rules from the heaven, And he has prepared a place for us there where the children of God will dwell. But he has bestowed uh, from heaven the earth to all who dwell in it. And in the goodness of the Lord, he gives good gifts even to sinners, right? He gives us our food and our drink and, and our children. He gives us rain and sun. And sometimes we call this his common grace. But in the end, ultimately, the earth will be given to his people, right? It is not the proud who will inherit the earth. It is the meek that he says will inherit the earth. Um, Not those who march in pride, but those who are humbled for their sin, right? Jesus will give uh, his people the earth. And ultimately, we see the great blessing of faith in the Lord Jesus, verses 17 and 18. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. You know, the spiritually dead, Those who do not trust in Christ, they will go down in silence. In some ways, they will be as dead as their idols are, right? Um, But us who trust in the Lord, will we die? No, we will live and we will live with Christ as our God forever as Christ ever lives. What did Jesus say? And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. He is, as we heard in our call to worship, the God of the living and not the dead. And we who trust in him will live forever. And when you take your last breath, child of God, you will be transported immediately to the paradise of God to behold your Savior in all of his radiance, in all of his beauty, uh, to ever be but with the Lord at his right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. And what will idolaters receive? They will go to outer darkness in eternal misery in some ways never to be heard from ever again, like their idols. And you will ask, where is the boast of all those who contended against the true God? And their boast turns to silence, and you will not hear of them ever again after death. But the sound of your voice, believer, it will ring praises forth for all eternity, and you will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And as this is a Hallel psalm, You find it's hallelujah at the very end, which is praise the Lord, which is in Hebrew, hallelujah. And so ends this psalm, which is a psalm of quiet and steadfast confidence in the Lord. And so in the face of even the mockery of our faith, right, we ask to whom else shall we go? For only Christ has the words of eternal life and we trust him in the face of it, and we will live forever if we trust in him, and we will praise him forever because our faith has been in the Lord and not in idols. And so may this psalm be a bulwark for your soul in the day of testing. Amen. Let us arise for prayer, if able.